Hello, and welcome to the Bloodstream Podcast, a show serving the greater bleeding disorders community brought to you by Believe Limited and Bloodstream Media and made possible due to our presenting sponsor, Takeda. I'm your patient advocate and host, Patrick James Lynch. And I'm your healthcare advocate, nonprofit nerd, and other host, Amy Board, reminding you to please speak with a healthcare professional before making any treatment decisions. The reminding you had a nice little lilt to it. Reminding you. You, oh. you like went into TV voice for a moment there. I liked it a lot. It was very oh. soothing, and I felt reminded. It is a specific voice, TV voice. It is. A, and you've got it, Amy Board. Great. You really do. Good You're a nonprofit, nonprofit nerd, TV voice lady. <laughs> got, a lot of, got a lot of things going Great. for you. Great. We have a packed show, so I better packed. run it down. Uh, you got to do an interview I'm very jealous of with Gunnar Esiason. Yes. He is a person living with cystic fibrosis. He's an extraordinary advocate on behalf of that community. May is Cystic Fibrosis Awareness Month. And, of course, he is the son of NFL Hall of Famer Boomer Esiason. And as a kid who grew up in New York, both watching the Jets and yes. listening to Sports Talk Radio, Boomer's been in my life a long time. So uh, having Gunnar on this podcast is awesome. You know who else is awesome? Rich, Rich Gorman. Gorman. We've had him on a couple few times between this and the Global Hemophilia yes. Report uh, to talk about the ethics around he's an ethicist he's an ethicist which is so cool <laughs> how many ethicist friends do you have he's it. he's my lone ethicist friend same rich we need more friends rich help us out we have our let's talk segment with joshua sterling bragg all that believe it or not and more on this episode welcome to bloodstream hey listeners as always thank you for joining us here on bloodstream and if you haven't already hit that subscribe button please just subscribe then it'll just you know pop up on your thing you don't have to do anything else then and you wouldn't even have to think about it which is no. great. Yeah, we don't want you to have to think. We want we you to enjoy the we show. We don't want you to have to think. We really are not trying to help anyone think <laughs> at all about anything. <laughs> and follow us on the social media. Yeah, you know how to do that. Obvi. Also, listeners, I want to remind you that the Bloodstream Podcast is indeed made possible by our presenting sponsor, Takeda. Takeda believes... In a world free of bleeds. It's a great thing to believe in. I've been believing in it a long time myself. Mm. And Takeda is dedicated more than ever in their efforts to offer a wide range of services and support to help patients on their treatment journey, wherever on that journey they, they may, may be. be. You can learn more <laughs> by simply visiting bleedingdisorders.com. How about that? A website. One more time. Bleedingdisorders.com. Great. And for their founding and ongoing support of the Bloodstream Podcast, I would just like to say... Thanks, Takeda. I also would like to say thanks, Takeda. Great. Hey, yes, hey. PJL. Amy, I've missed you. I know. <laughs> I haven't seen you at all. If we didn't do this podcast these days, we wouldn't see each other I except would... virtually in a few meetings. Yes. Actually, you popped into a Zoom meeting, I think, last week, and I was like, it it t took me back. I was jarred. I was like, oh, my God. Yeah. And I was trying to figure out in your background where, where you've been. I mean, you've been. Where have I been? You've. You've been doing a thing. I've been doing a thing. What's nice is it's kept me very busy, but I'm not traveling. Well, I'll, I'll tell you that. I'm traveling around Southern California. Yeah. I'm learning about all new neighborhoods in Southern yes, California. actually, but you're not traveling like on the big airplanes. Yeah, so it's nice to be in this production that's on such an Acela track, yeah. but without the added wrinkle that we so often in our productions have yeah. to face, which is like some pretty massive travel considerations, right. which like bandwidth, money, all of it. So. Right. Yeah, but it does pull me away from here and hanging out with you and like being a part of the fabric. So it's nice to do this podcast that we can talk to each other. But it is nice. You know, we don't talk about this enough, I think, on the Bloodstream podcast. Our parent company, Believe Limited, of course, mm -hmm. is a production house. We're a content agency and we also do uh, full length documentary film. And we have three crews going out now at the exact same time. Yeah. We've never had that before. We've had usually just like one little motley crew that's, yeah. you know, like traveling the world. And it's Fun. There's three full-blown 
productions happening at the same time. It's really exciting. We had a day 19B this past weekend for the one I'm on yeah. because while we were in one location filming stuff, yeah. we had another shooter in a different location yes. filming stuff. And I was like, oh, this one shoot, this one production this weekend yes. has two different. So it's it's kind of bananas here these days. Very exciting stuff that's coming out of Belial Limited, I should say. Yes. And I'm excited to talk more about that stuff uh, when the time is right. I think we talked about this a bit last time, too. But of course, now the teaser trailer for... Uh, our Elite Athletes documentary, Redefining Impossible. Which is called Redefining Impossible. Has kind of made its way around. We've gotten good yes. feedback on that. And so. what a phenomenal trailer. It's super good. Like the footage is really great. The stories that they've captured is really great. And Kay, our editor, did just a bang up job. Yeah, she crossed that... it. Pumps me up to watch it. I'm like, <laughs> I got to see this. When when can I see this? And the answer is at the BDC, August. Oh. Haha, in Washington, D.C. That was a great little. Sign up now. Didn't even plan to do that, did you know? Actually, we should think about it. Um, now is time for the BDC uh, registrations. And last yeah. year, the Bleeding Disorder Conference uh, used to be called NHF, all the things. But now it's the Bleeding Disorder Conference going to be in Washington, D.C. I plan to go. I know you plan to go. I plan to go as well. As well. And last year, registration was kind of down. It'll be very interesting mm. to see if registration has popped back up this year. I hope so. I hope you all come because um, we're doing cool things. <laughs> <laughs> we're also fun we're at fun the group. BDC. We are. We're going to have the science fair. We're going to yeah. have movie screen. Screenings. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of like unlike any other health conference. You can really. come. You can hang out with me and Patrick. We're very accessible at the BDC, and we're very fun. Very fun. In case <laughs> you didn't get that note, um, we've got so much content for this show, so yeah. I feel like we got to just kind of keep it moving. Yeah. Amy, uh, I already admitted how jealous I am of the Gunner interview. What would you like to share with our audience before we go ahead and get into it? I'm just going to share how jealous you are because you were the whole driving force behind this interview, <laughs> and then because of said film project, you couldn't do it and mm -hmm. you know it was kind of you know a back and forth to get him on so i got to do it <laughs> and he is lovely i i you know it, it's a phenomenal interview like don't uh fast forward y'all because i think um you know he was born into his family into his advocacy family and as we all know a lot of us in the hemophilia community were born into our advocacy families i have so many stories about that and the the push and pull of that and it's just kind of interesting to see how he navigated through that and and um, he's really crushing it. So um, anyway, here's my interview with Gunnar Esiason. All right, let's hear it. <laughs> Listeners, I am here with Gunnar Esiason. Gunnar lives with cystic fibrosis. He is an advocate and a public speaker, and he is the co-host of Breathe In, a cystic fibrosis podcast. We are thrilled to have him on Bloodstream. Welcome, Gunnar, and welcome, fellow podcaster. You know all the things. You're going to yeah. know all my tricks. Hey, Amy, thanks for having me on. It's, it's been a little while since I've had a podcast. Uh, Breathe In uh, came to a conclusion a few years back, but uh, it's always fun to uh, to get back behind the mic. You know, we have so many patient advocates that listen to the show, and they they love um, to go back through, like, you know, I don't know, chronic disease, rare disease podcast. So I'm sure you'll get hopefully a bump from. It still lives on the Internet forever. So that's, yes! that's the nice thing about that. <laughs> also terrifying. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah so when I run for senator in 25 years, hopefully what I said on the podcast doesn't come back. To, you're going to have to get it. Everything <laughs> has to get off of there. It's great. Um, well, I guess like, tell me, I mean, 
to be lame, tell me your story. Tell me your CF story. Uh, what has it been like? Tell me the things. Yeah, that's, that's a big question. Um, <laughs> but, I, but thanks for having me on. I um, So yeah, I'm living with cystic fibrosis. I am 31 years old. Actually, I'll probably be 32 by the time this is, this is published. Uh, Happy so my birthday. birthday. Yeah, my birthday is coming up in a couple weeks. Uh, but I was diagnosed with cystic fibrosis in 1993 when I was two years old. Uh, my dad was at the peak of his, his NFL career, playing with the New York Jets at the time. And uh, my parents saw an opportunity to put uh, a face on, on an otherwise very well unknown disease. You know, cystic fibrosis is a rare disease. Um, and since then, our family's foundation has raised uh, in excess of $160 million in the fight against cystic fibrosis. Uh, and a lot of that funding has gone towards you know, clinical R&D, but also improvements in, in patient financial assistance. Uh, the foundation has very much grown um, as the cystic fibrosis population has, during this generation, been very fortunate to age. It's actually one of the really one of the most remarkable uh, stories in medicine right now is cystic fibrosis, mm. and I'm sure we'll, we'll we'll sort of get into that a little bit later. But you know, my life course with cystic fibrosis was fairly typical for someone uh, born with CF my generation. Uh, I, I kind of had some ups and downs through my childhood and some different health hurdles as I kind of got through high school. But once I finally graduated college, uh, my health was basically in a complete free fall. And that was due in large part to the uh, the antibiotic resistance bacteria that lives within our lungs inside cystic fibrosis patients. Um, and really what that kind of means for listeners who may not know is that as you treat uh, bacterial infections with antibiotics over and over and over throughout the course of somebody's life, those antibiotics... Uh, become weaker and weaker as the bacteria evolves to become more and more impervious uh, to, to to those treatments. And that's kind of the the negative feedback loop that I was caught in when I was 22 or 23 years old. Um, and I was kind of confronted with the reality that I was very quickly headed to end-stage condition, uh, end-stage illness. And, and, and what that means in cystic fibrosis uh, is, you know, very quickly short of breath, lots of uh, lots, lots of mucus production, coughing, you know, uh, it's not, not a pretty sight. Uh, and to sort of put a picture on what, what that looked like at that time is that when I was, uh, you know, some mornings when I was in the middle of a pulmonary exacerbation or, or really a symptom flare, uh, getting from the bedroom to the bathroom some mornings to brush my teeth was almost impossible without uh, falling into some sort of, uh, you know, respiratory distress. And hearing me talk about that right now feels like an, another lifetime ago. And I'm sure, like, looking at me through the Zoom call that we're on, yeah. it's probably hard to imagine. Um, and, you know, sort of the, 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 the nice part of this story is that, you know, after living like that for a couple of years, I finally got into a clinical trial in 2018 uh, for a drug that uh, came to be known as Tricaptin. It basically changed my life in a, in a matter of hours. Uh, you know, within you know, within 24 hours, my oxygen saturation climbed. Within 36 hours, my cough started to dissipate, and then a week later, uh, you know, the symptoms of cystic fibrosis very much started to vanish. So it's been a, a wild ride, especially over that the last, you know, especially over the last, I know, especially over the last five years. Um, but it's really kind of what's going on across the cystic fibrosis uh, population, uh, with a few exceptions here or there. But um, it's really one of the more uh, remarkable stories out there. Incredible. Um, I, I do have questions about kind of the treatment landscape and how that has changed in your lifetime and what that must be like. But kind of um, going back to patient advocacy and knowing that you, uh, your, your parents started this foundation when you were young. Of course, your father is a public figure, is Boomer Esiason, for those that uh, haven't put two and two together. Did you, when was your turning point when you, when you kind of took this on, on your own, that you wanted to speak about it, that you wanted to be a public mm -hmm. face and a public advocate for this? What was that like for you as a young man? Yeah, you know, I think um, my parents are very aware 
that they did not give me a choice when I was diagnosed with CF to, you know, go on you know, the cover of Sports Illustrated, as my dad and I did when I was, you know, a really little kid. Yeah. Uh, like, they are very aware that they made that choice for me, and they had no expectations mm-hmm. for me as I grew up to sort of take that on. Yeah. Um, like, you know, as I said, when I, when I came out of college and I was very, very sick uh, at about 22 or 23, I started to be getting more involved with day-to-day operations within inside our, our, our family's foundation. And one of my first responsibilities uh, was uh, managing interviews for our scholarship program. So, uh, you know, we offer uh, a number of uh, scholarships for, for people with cystic fibrosis and their family members now who are going to college. And uh, I was handed the responsibility of interviewing our applicants. And I got to meet so many people with CF through those interviews over those first couple of years of doing it that I started to put together some patterns and some understanding of what people were dealing with. Um, and I could, you know, in some cases relate to them. And in other cases, I was learning, you know, a whole other side of cystic fibrosis that was out there. Uh, and it was pretty, uh, it was pretty informative for me to, mm-hmm. to hear, uh, you know, about all the pain points that people had, whether it was not getting a provider to listen to them or, um, you know, trying, you know, struggling under the weight of the uh, insurance industry uh, trying to get medicines covered, uh, not understanding the value of this clinical trial versus another competing clinical trial, both of which were hungry for patients and how to understand which one to choose or which one is a better choice. Uh, so all of these kind of conversations kept popping up over and over and over and over again during these uh, during these you know, these scholarship interviews of all places mm-hmm. uh, that I kind of felt it was like a little intelligence gathering, but also I was realizing. Um, that there was, you know, I had a platform to start talking more publicly about uh, drug development, patient-centeredness, uh, you know, patient-centered care, all of these different things. Um, and it also piqued my interest. I started just learning as much about it as I could. I started devouring resources, making contacts, building a network. Um, and it's really all due in large part to those interviews that I was doing. Interesting. You mentioned that once you found this treatment, got on the clinical trial, uh, life changed instantly, which I have never heard anything like that where it was that fast. Did you forget about it? Why are you still a public advocate? Why is it so important for you to still be public about this? Um, you know, I think, uh, well, for a few reasons. One, the story of cystic fibrosis is so remarkably successful that other rare conditions should follow our playbook, right? Like, mm. you know, the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation uh, set, you know, a path to treat and conquer cystic fibrosis. And while we haven't achieved a cure, nor have we uh, been able to find a medicine that, uh, you know, uh, positively impacts everyone, right? The medication that I'm on is uh, appropriate for about 90% of the patient population. We see if there's still about 10% of the patient population that uh, unfortunately can't benefit and they still kind of deal with the classics. Yeah. Um, and, and really what, what I've taken away from that is that we have a model for really altering the course of a condition and that needs to be applied to other rare diseases, especially, um, and, and it can. So that was one motivating factor for me. Uh, but but two, right, the, the quest isn't over, right? We're still on the path to a cure for cystic fibrosis. Um, patients uh, should have a, a, a more uh, impactful role in our, our delivery of healthcare. Um, and, and, you know, those are two kind of pillars that I that I sit upon. And that's uh, that that's really the, the story of why I guess I, I'm still out there doing what I'm what I'm doing. That's cool. Um, I sometimes feel that patient advocacy um, is thankless work at times. It feels like just yelling into the void. And so I wonder, um, 
you know, how have you seen your passion in your story pay off and how, what has it been like when you haven't felt heard? Well, you know, I think um, what I realized, especially after I started taking Tricapta was that I had, uh, I had a very uh, like weird career, right? I, I had I spent you know, the first five or six years of my life out of out of school dealing with intense illness. Yeah. Um, and it wasn't until uh, several months into that clinical trial that my wife and I, uh, well, well, she was my girlfriend at the time, but my now wife, were on a road trip together. We could finally do things together, right? We could finally just like leave and like go travel and stuff. Uh, and we of all places, we were stuck in traffic on the New Jersey Turnpike, and she turned to me and she said, "You know, you have the rest of your life to look forward to. You know, what do you want to do with your life now?" And it was a it was a good question. I had never once considered it, um, but after you know a summer of reflecting on uh, you know where I had been, what I had gone through, the insights that I had picked up of living with severe cystic fibrosis, I realized that I didn't really have technical skills. Right? I didn't have technical business skills or public health skills or uh, you know medical skills or anything. It was, everything was pretty much self taught through severe disease, mm. talking with patients and other. Um, other you know, clinical people in the CF world. Uh, and I realized that I needed to go out there and get them. So I put myself, so I applied to business school. I got in and I went through uh, uh, three years of grad school, got an MBA and MPH. And I decided that I should marry that very technical, um, you know, uh, technical sort of part of the, the working world with the very uh, intricate experiences that I have of living with CF and sort of could see what would come out of it. So actually out of school, I now work for a startup called Florence Healthcare. We provide technology solutions to accelerate uh, clinical trials and to um, in increase the capacity of, of research sites to actually enroll more more patients and, and they make it go faster. So I guess that's one place where I've applied uh, patient advocacy into sort of the working world or into the business world where, um, you know, my perspective is that if you put the right patients with the right qualifications, in the right businesses at the right time, you can actually make the healthcare uh, system more patient-centric. That's cool. That's cool. Congratulations. That's cool. Um, I read a quote of yours somewhere. Um, the greatest curse of CF is that you know what's coming. And that hit me, and it made me, it made me think of our hemophilia patients. And I wondered if you could put more words to that. Yeah. So, um, you know, what, what I meant by that is that our cystic fibrosis community is actually very small, very intricate, very... Um, uh, you know, patients very much know each other. Mm. Uh, you know, one of the weird parts of cystic fibrosis is that because there is an infectious disease component to it, two people with CF actually can't be in the same proximity of each other. So, uh, for decades, we've been practicing like the, the social distancing buzzword, buzzword that everyone's used over the last oh uh, my couple gosh, of I years. didn't even think about that. So, uh, we do it oh. with each other, right? So, yeah. two people with CF can, can sort of share the same strain of bacterial infection, yeah. and that can create a whole sort of problems. But one sort of byproduct of that is that the CF community has sort of rallied around, um, you know, online communities, uh, you know, from the dawn, really the dawn of social media or even before. Um, and as a result, you, you grow up with these, these friendships that, um, uh, with other people with CF. And, you know, you mentioned about the podcast that I did earlier, Breathe In, the Breathe In podcast. My two co-hosts were, were two women with cystic fibrosis that I had ever, never actually met in person. Um, and, uh, you know, the sort of downside to that, however, though, is you see people firsthand uh, go through the end stages of cystic fibrosis. Um, and, and really kind of in the days before Trikafta, really, there was only one ending that we all you know, sort of foresaw and it was the very severe respiratory disease. And then finally, uh, you know, your, your respiratory 
sort of uh, symptoms overcome every other part of your body. So um, when, when, I, you know, when I talk about knowing what was coming my way before TriCafta hit, yeah. you know, I was very clearly and very much a realist knowing that I was quickly running out of options and uh, it just so happened that the TriCafta trial rolled around sort of wow. at the, the right time for me. Wow. Unreal. Um, so what's next for you? What's next for the community? What, what are some of the things you're working on and what are some of the hopes in the next couple of years? Well, you know, I think, um, you know, our Families Foundation, we recently launched uh, an IVF uh, assistance grant for people with cystic fibrosis who want to go through family building. Uh, and, you know, one of the other little unknown parts of CF is that 98 to 99 percent of men uh, are infertile. Right? We're born with congenital absence of the vas deferens, meaning that sperm can't exit our body unless it's medically extracted. Uh, and unfortunately, here in the U.S., IVF is not universally covered. Uh, in some states, you know, it's starting to get better with some employers are starting to get better. But broadly across the states, IVF uh, and, and uh, family building uh, treatments are not covered by insurance. So uh, we've stepped up to provide uh, financial resources for as many families as we can help uh, grow as, as possible. The second thing that uh, I'm really looking forward to, at least from like the, you know, the development and evolution of the CF uh, community is, you know, we're standing on the precipice of a number of gene therapies starting to enter the clinic uh, in, in the next couple of years here, for especially for uh, the part of the population that does not benefit from drug apta. So mm. that's a very small part of our population, but on the, on, the, on the nice side of it, there's a lot of gene therapies uh, that are sort of working their way through the preclinical stages and then entering the clinic here. Uh, and it's going to create like this weird little dynamic, actually, where you have a lot of clinical trials that are going to be hungry for a very finite number of patients. Uh, and huh. one thing that I do want to see happen is I want to see that patients take their uh, leverage uh, as a finite resource and start to, to reform clinical trials for the better moving forward. Right. So I think that's one thing that patient communities don't really quite realize they have. And it's that they have the leverage as a finite resource to change things for the better, right? Make them more patient-centric, make, make follow-up times easier, make clinical visits easier, make the whole process more accessible and easier for, for everyone. And that's something that I think patient communities should start to rally around, especially as trials start to get more complex in the near future. Oh man, here, here. I haven't heard anybody say it quite like that and quite impassioned. That must be your public speaking. You must crush every <laughs> time you go out. Um, you actually alluded to it. And my final question, congratulations, you're a dad. I am. I am a dad. We uh, we welcomed uh, our son to the world at the end of uh, 2021. So he's uh, he's about 15 months old, uh, yes! which, has been, which has been super cool. Oh, that's great. Oh, what a perfect age. Well, congratulations. Are you sleeping? Can you sleep? Are you... Um, we, we are trying to sleep. Uh, <laughs> uh, but no, it's, it's been good. He's um, he is a super emotive baby. He's very awake, aware. He is uh, got a huge personality. Um, especially coming from my family, I guess that's not super shocking. Um, but Fair. it's, it's, um, it's been super fun to watch him grow. It's been super fun to see my parents, you know, his grandparents change. Yeah. It's been fun to see my wife change. It's been fun to see yeah. my in-laws change. It's been fun to see me change. Um, but I, you know, I, I, I recognize that the fact that he's even here is something of a small miracle. So it's, uh, I try to reflect on it as much as I can. I, I catch myself just like looking at him just being in like disbelief. So. Super, super cool. 
Oh, that's so great. Oh, all the heart swells. Um, well, thank you so much for being with us. Honestly, this was a joy. Um, where can listeners follow you? Where can we do all the things? Yeah, so I have a website, GunnarSiason.com. Good luck spelling that with all the vowels. Uh, you can also- <laughs> Google uh, it, Google it. Yeah, you can also catch me on Twitter uh, at g 17 That's awesome. Thank you so much, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Cool, thanks, Andy. Gordon and I are now joined by my blood brother from across the pond and the only person I know who I can call an ethicist, Rich Gorman. Welcome back to Bloodstream. Thanks for being with us. It's great to be here. And thank you. Thank you once again for having me, even though you know, I'm all the, way, all the way from the other side of the Atlantic. Technology is an amazing thing, isn't it? You know, so the, to just get right into it with you, Rich, listeners uh, may recall Rich, along with colleagues Lawrence and Dakota, joined Amy and I some months back, I don't know now, maybe over a year ago, I don't even remember, a paper that they had worked on as people with hemophilia who also had professional roles in healthcare, healthcare delivery uh, from different perspectives, all contributing to the idea of informed consent and how are we defining informed consent as it re re uh, relates to gene therapy, where are some of the nuances and idiosyncrasies. And as Amy and I were talking about bringing you back on, Rich, the reason is quite a simple one. When last we spoke to you, gene therapy was an investigational therapy. It was in clinical trials. It is now commercially available in numerous places. And we have heme A, heme B. There are differences. The differences matter. So it's we've now entered into what we were anticipating last we spoke to you. So the umbrella for today's conversation, Rich, is what's changed. What's changed in your mind? What's changed from things you've heard from people? How have the ethics around gene therapy, informed consent changed, if at all, since last we spoke to you, and the floor is yours to kick us off. <laughs> well, I mean, it's, it's, it's really interesting. Um, I mean, you, as, as a technology, I think it's really fast moving. Um, you know, it's, it's, it has now come into these kind of clinical spaces, and that's a very different space uh, and, and a relationship between providers and, and people with hemophilia than in that kind of clinical trial context where a lot of, of the thinking and practice has developed so far. So suddenly being in that much more clinical space, um, you've got kind of different kinds of patients uh, now suddenly eligible for these new technologies. So it, it's very different. Your clinical trials, it's, it's, yeah, they're, they're often very particular about who who's eligible to take part in those trials because they're trying to control for so many things. Inclusion, exclusion criteria, is that the language that's usually associated with that? Yeah, 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 yeah. And you, you, you want people that are going to be good, good candidates for, 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 for that kind of trial because it's about generating data and, and, and ensuring that you, there is, there is you know, scientific knowledge about what's going on with all this. Obviously, when, you, when you're taking it to a much more clinical perspective, then you're kind of opening up the doors for, for anyone. And obviously, that's, that's, that's great, but it's a very different set of, of ethical considerations. And I, I don't know really if, if you know, the, I mean, there's been lots, lots of discussion around informed consent obviously Lawrence Dakota and I have been kind of banging this gong mm -hmm. of, of consent for for a few years now um but I still think there's a lot more lot more work to be done um you know, you've 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 now got this kind of treatment on the cards in for for people that might not be as familiar with it obviously if you're if you're kind of going into a clinical trial you're, you're going to maybe be a bit more familiar with with what's going on in the kind of you treatment treatment development context um you knowing about about these kind of gene therapies that are coming through, whereas now actually, you know, it, it's it's just out there as as something um, that is is available to a lot more people. Which 
it makes me nervous. Like listening to you say that, it, it makes me nervous <laughs> if I'm being truthful. Like I know it's exciting and there's a lot of good, but I get nervous. What comes up for you as you like sit with that reality as a patient? Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, wearing my wearing my hemophilia hat, um, which yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd be cool if I did have a hemophilia hat, but uh, oh, we can make merch. Yes. <laughs> um, I mean, yeah, there's, the, I think the priority has, has got to be education um, and yeah, that needs to come from the advocacy organisations, the patient organisations and ensuring that you, know, as, as a community, we are doing our utmost to make sure that you know, other people in the community know about these, about these new treatments that are coming into, into, into centres, into, into clinics, um, but also to try and empower people to ask questions and you, when when you've got sort of uncertain technologies, you need to really have mechanisms that can support really kind of open and frank and honest discussion between patients and providers. And obviously, that's really hard because these are really complex technologies. I mean, you, know, I, I, I researched some of this, and and I, I, I couldn't explain how how gene therapies work. I mean, you've made goodness how many podcasts about this, and, and <laughs> you, I, I, maybe I, maybe I can turn the tables and ask you to explain to me how gene therapies work, Patrick. Whoa, whoa, Rich! No, you got to get your own podcast first. <laughs> hold on, hold on. No, you tell us what gene therapy means. <laughs> Uh, no, you make a great point, though. You make a great point. I guess there's a, a to follow up though on this education piece. The mm. it's difficult for even people like you and I who are vested in healthcare in a way that's different than we'll say your quote average patient or average caregiver, mm. and we would mm. struggle to effectively describe the mechanisms of AAV yeah. gene therapy. And to your point, there's just the the known unknowns. Like we don't know what real world lived experience and data looks like X number of years out for this product, Y number of years out for this product. So from an ethical perspective, there is only so much education that's even available because the the known unknowns and the unknown unknowns exist too. So how do we help people get enough, like what's enough knowledge? When is someone literate enough to be able to make a quote, fully informed decision in the context of a shared decision-making process? From an ethical perspective, when is there enough education? Yeah, I don't want, don't want to speak to, speak for ethicists everywhere. Fair, um, but I think yeah, that that comes down to yeah, it's it's it's, a, it's an individual thing about people feeling that they have had the opportunity to ask um, that there has been sort of a, a sort of level of openness and transparency in discussions. Um, so yeah, these mm. ideas of of kind of treatment remorse um, that people mm. might regret. Uh, adopting gene therapy, or you ha ha having a course of gene therapy, you, th that's that's something that people need to be prepared for because you know, it, it's not like, say, a, a extended half life product or uh, you know, some of these other other products that are coming to market where you know, if, if if you're not happy with it, if you're not enjoying it, you can you can go back to your previous treatment. Right. Gene therapy is not as easy like that, so making people aware of some of these these kind of just the very different mechanisms of of treatment you particularly as a community where you we're very used to kind of our factor based therapies sure um and and how those work and and that's great and i think you know, all the work that's been done in the community to make sure that people are you're really com comfortable and confident but your gene therapy is just a completely different animal rich um what now since gene therapy has been approved um in several places um 
What have your impressions been of the provider community um, and the physician community? I'm sure you've heard um, a lot of people speak about it. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's really varied geographically. Um, I think you certain sort of countries and advocacy groups and providers are, are sort of a lot more advanced in, in thinking about this and preparing their kind of communities for this this kind of oncoming um, set of therapeutic technologies. Um, and yeah, you know, it it sounds like a a bit of a cop out answer, but really, I I think dialogue and 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 discussion is is the sort of hallmark of really getting to to the the sort of important questions. Yeah, you know, there's 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 so much that is 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 kind of complicated in these technologies, and just assuming that people will understand it, that people have been following the kind of biotech press releases, been following the kind of regulatory announcements. Um, yeah, that that that's that's really important, and then I guess the, the other the other part that I think for me is really important is is language, um, and the language that we use to talk about these treatments. Um, I mean, here in the UK, uh, a few a few weeks ago, a few months ago, um, you know, the, the BBC, a sort of major major news provider over here, you had the headline of your cure for haemophilia. Mm-hmm. And you know, that kind of language of cure, I think, is is really problematic in terms of the kind of imaginations and promises that it's creating amongst our communities, but also not just our communities, amongst wider society. And you know, that's one of the huge, I think, ethical considerations about um, gene therapies is, um, you know, could the widespread use of gene therapy make society less accepting of people who are different? And you, you then you go into other ethical considerations. You that well, if if the idea that people of hem, people with hemophilia have something wrong with them that needs to be corrected, and and th- that kind of language, and then you have questions of you know, what happens to people who who perhaps don't want to have gene therapy. Um, you what support is is left for them? What understanding is left by? wider society where naturally the headlines are bouncing around saying hey hey hemophilia's been cured what's what's wrong with you and then even even if you know even if i did have gene therapy tomorrow my ankles are still completely knackered um so yeah the the kind of language that that we use that that kind of wider media providers use and and that providers themselves use to talk about these technologies is is really important and i think what's what's quite it's going back to your question, eventually, Amy, I, 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 am, I am getting there with my rambling, <laughs> is um, you know, the, 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 the providers kind of perhaps being aware of the, the, the media ecosystem which patients might be coming to them from and that pa- you know, patients might be consuming this kind of media that is saying, hey, your hemophilia is cured now. Great stuff. And, and actually, as patients, it's not our job, although some of us it is, uh, to follow these kind of regulatory press releases and, um, and, and get really excited following gene therapy through all these, all these kind of processes and approvals. Some people aren't going to be doing that. They're just going to see those sort of base media headlines. And um, so I think being, being aware that there are different, different levels of excitement about gene therapy, perhaps, is, is an important lesson for providers. There's so much in what you just said, and I will respond. Well, I want to add a complication too by the usage of the word cure, which I align with Hmm. you. I think is problematic. There's also shows up way more than I would ever expect. Same, same, and I don't know anything of anything, Rich, and I'm like, really, people still say that word? (laughs) Yeah, people, highly credible people who I would prefer not, and yet if they are themselves. (laughs) 
sharing the paraphrased words of their patients mm -hmm. and trying to describe to others what patients mm -hmm. are using, the vocabulary that patients are using mm -hmm. to describe their lived experience, it's hard for me to fault someone for Same. wanting to share with that level of specificity. But this particular word carries so much. And to your point, Rich, if you and I today received gene therapy, our ankles would be knackered. And thank you for bringing this, speaking of vocab, and our daughters would be <laughs> obligate carriers at a minimum. Mm. So how yeah. cured is this exactly? This is a problematic yeah, word. Yeah. And if, if hemophilia cured, hemophilia cured is in headlines, and then you're going to school and you're like, I need an individualized education plan for my child with hemophilia. And they're going, no, you don't. Hemophilia is cured. It's like measles. Just get a shot or something. So there's so many problematic wrinkles to the usage of the word that would probably best just to move on because we could spend the rest of our time just yeah. to, and maybe we do need a whole episode on the word cure itself. I think I'm ready for it, Amy. Yeah. I don't know. Oh, I God. think we Here need we to go. have that episode. Cool, and cool. I think I know who some of the guests are. <laughs> but I want to switch gears a little bit, Rich, if we could, to another element of gene therapy in particular where, for me, ethics come into play, and that is the registries. So on one hand... Mm -hmm. We talked earlier about a lack of real-world data and how individualized these experiences are. And yet, on the other hand, the registries are what, over time, put all of the individual experiences into one collected place so that we can analyze them and, based on that analysis, learn certain trends, community population-level trends. Oh, factor eight levels are really falling off between years seven and eight or whatever it is that we will come to learn. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of good with the registries. I understand it. It's great that the WFH is in a lead position. And here in the US, we have Athen, highly credible place to be the uh, uh, the entity to provide the data to Athen on a global level. My question is, where do the ethical flags for you get raised? Because with all this data being collected and stored somewhere, and if you ask anybody, okay, well, who's looking at it and for what purposes? In my experience, the answer is some version of, well, credible scientists, and they can apply to use it. It will be de-identified. Okay, but that's pretty broad still. And so for yeah. me... I'm willing to, uh, what's the word? I'm, I'm willing to submit to science and to the process and to the fact that I don't know how all of my data is going to be used if I go forward with gene therapy and that data is collected. I don't know, and I've decided I'm okay with it. But that's me. As an ethicist, how do you think about that piece of the pie? Mm, mm. So, I mean, it, it goes back to you know, an ethicist's favorite word of consent. Um, you know, it, it needs to be those those procedures of informed consent that people understand what what is their data is going to be used for, and you know, and 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 actually participation and of in in the in the registry is different to perhaps participation and access to to, to medicine. Um, you know, are, are are those two mutually exclusive? If you don't participate in the registry, then what happens? Are you still eligible for these kind of new cool novel treatments? Right. Um, you know, because that that then becomes you know, well actually you know, are, are people really consenting to be in that registry or is there a kind of power dynamic involved there? You know, as, as their doctor they told want them, access and have to do it. Yeah, exactly. So you you've you've got things like that. Mm. Um and you know, yeah, what what's it going to be used for? Who gets to decide what it's used for? And you see some registries for for other conditions, um, for the, for other sorts sorts of biomedical data, where actually having people from the community as a sort of co-involved panel 
um, that get to sort of comment on or, or, or feedback on applications to to those registries. And I think you know, there's, there's definitely more space in hemophilia for that kind of, uh, you know, in the UK, we call it patient involvement, where actually you know, it, it's, it's you know, co-developed with people with hemophilia to say, actually, you know, this, this scientist and this group of scientists have applied to the registry. We think this is a really cool study that will benefit our community versus, hey, this just looks like a scientist that wants to write a paper. Rich, on a personal level, how have the last few months impacted your thinking about gene therapy in your potential future? If you feel comfortable sharing that, I'm putting you on the spot a little bit. Yeah, dang. Yeah, no. <laughs> it's, 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 it's an interesting question. I'm, I'm still... Uh, highly ambivalent, uh, mm. gene therapy agnostic, uh, one could say. Like I, I, I know it's out there. Uh, I, I, but w- w- what what power it has for me, uh, I, I'm not not entirely sure right now. Uh, you know, I, as as we were saying earlier, I could have gene therapy tomorrow, but my ankles are still uh, uh, you know, in a terrible terrible state, and uh, that's not gonna going to fix that. Um, so actually, you know, the, the aspects of my hemophilia that gene therapy could contribute to uh, on, on the on the bits that sort of bother me. Um, so it's, I guess, for me personally, it, it hasn't been a priority uh, as, as something to sort of get too excited about. Uh, I mean, as, as an academic that's interested in all of this, it, it's fascinating. Um, and yeah, I'm really interested in how we as a community begin to sort of make sense of this as as gene therapy comes into the clinic. Rich, um, to as we kind of wind down, uh, patients or caretakers, um, parents that are listening that might um, be thinking about this, are um, questioning, wondering if they should talk to their doctor, wondering if their hematologist is the right hematologist. What are some of your um, words for them as they are embarking kind of on the decision-making process? And to, you know, what are some red flags maybe in a conversation for them to be aware of? I mean, I, th- I think 100% people should be talking to, to their clinicians uh, and providers about it um, because, I think it's really helpful to understand um, you how, how how sort of on the money your your provider might be about these kind of recent changes, um, and and kind of where 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 they sit in terms of being sort of up to date with the science and the regulation and, and what's happening. Um, I mean, I think you know it's 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 really interesting to ask uh, you where what they think about the, about the treatments and you. To sort of see you know, if it, if if it kind of relates to their own research interests, that's always something that I think is really important to do because you know, we know, uh, and it's it's really great that this happens. But a lot of um, hemophilia providers are also research active, and I think that's great because it means we do get research led um, treatment. But you know, I think it's really important to understand you do. Uh, uh, you, is, is your clinician someone that has you is really involved in this kind of gene therapy research are they going to have a, a kind of heightened excitement over it or or, or perhaps the opposite you know, perhaps they're they're kind of really interested in, in pursuing other lines of therapy and as a result they they might think ah well no 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 it's it's you know, it's it's not not as good so i think you're trying to find the opportunity to identify other people to talk to as well mm. Uh, whether that's within the advocacy groups or you know, cl- um, clinicians, providers, colleagues, um, 
and just finding out more about what is what's happening locally. Um, but I think you beginning to have those conversations is is really important. I think your knowledge knowledge is power in 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 this case, and I think the more we have conversations about this, then the the better it will be. I mean, I think the other thing to to sort of be aware of and, and remember is that perhaps providers aren't prepared to have these conversations themselves, and you know, there's an opportunity, uh, responsibility perhaps for the advocacy groups. Um, and the, the sort of networks of providers to sort of begin to think about what training needs um, providers might need in order to sort of have have conversations with patients about gene therapies, but also be prepared for perhaps some of those kind of less clinical questions, more ethical questions, you mm. know, like, well, how does this change my identity as someone with haemophilia? Mm. I mean, that's it's not something- Good luck, haematologist. <laughs> exactly, you know, like and, unless they've they've come back and done a second second degree in kind of philosophy, which would be really cool, uh, and yeah, I'd happily I happily advocate for. Um, it might be not be the kind of question that they're prepared to or expect to answer, and they might even not assume that it's their responsibility to answer those questions. But again, as we were saying earlier, gene therapy is such a different technology, and it, it has kind of much more social. In emotional impacts as well as his clinical impacts, uh, yeah. that I think you know, as part of any equitable conversation, there yeah. needs to be space to ask those those kind of identity based philosophical questions as well. And um, I think you know, it's important that providers can can make space or bring in colleagues with expertise to support people to to explore those lines of thinking too. You know, Greg Blamey is a clinician at a hemophilia treatment center in Canada. We had him on Bloodstream some months back to talk about sexual health in particular, and he made the point mm. of how often sexual health just doesn't come up at all yeah. in the context of yeah. a clinic visit. And he said this in stark terms, we call this comprehensive care. Yes. Mm. We, the providers, we dubbed it that. <laughs> so if we want to fulfill what we've called it, we have to deliver on that. And I think that means mm -hmm. sexual health. That means, hey, gene therapy's here. We have to have conversations about ethics and identity at yeah. a level we didn't before. You're not a yeah. ready for that center? That's okay. Get ready for it. No one was ready for it. And now it's here. And so now we have to just change. You know, you have to evolve. And I do think there's a responsibility on the advocacy side of things to make sure that in addition to educating our patients, our caregivers, policymakers, that we are not just saying, oh, and here walks in the physician, everybody applaud and let them on stage and let's listen to what they have to say. Sometimes they need help too. And if we only ever ask them to be in leadership positions, we put them in a tough spot as well. If we never say to them, hey, here's some materials we wanted to make available to you. Hey, we have a session during our weekend that has uh, you know, a scientist from the CDC who's particularly expert because we thought you amongst patients might enjoy some of the education. We have to think a little bit more creatively as do the centers. And Rich, mm. I want to have you back. So let's let's make a plan, Amy Board, right yes. now. Okay. And if this is a terrible idea, K Keith Japney team, we can cut this part at the end of the podcast. <laughs> but I, uh, Amy Board, that's you, right? That is me. We have a new podcast. Oh my god, a new podcast. Tell me more. It's it's really cool, and it is called PV Pod Stories from the Marrow. Oh my, that is a great title. I know. This is a brand new podcast from Bloodstream Media, sponsored by Pharma Essentia, and it's about polycythemia vera, otherwise known as PV cancer. What is polycythemia vera? Yep. Alternate pronunciations. Great. Uh, that's a great question. I do ask good questions. And I'll and tell you. And I know you. how to pronounce stuff. <laughs> 
polycythemia vera, or PV, you can say PV, PV for short, it causes your bone marrow to make too many red blood cells. So these excess cells thicken your blood, slowing its flow, which may cause serious problems like blood clots. And we've created this podcast to help support the PV community. I love that. Let's listen to the trailer for the new show. Okay, you or a loved one has just been diagnosed with polycythemia vera, otherwise known as PV. It's a rare blood cancer that causes your bone marrow to create too many blood cells, especially red blood cells, which creates a higher risk for blood clots and stroke. I know, it sounds pretty scary. Maybe you were told that... It's okay. You'll die with PV, not from it. Comforting? Possibly. Or maybe you read on the internet that... If you're gonna get a cancer, get PV. Wait a minute. Do we really trust what the internet has to say? We'll tackle all this and more right here on The PV Pod, Stories from the Marrow. Whether you're a PV patient or caring for one, we want you to know that you're not alone. We also understand that PV might be downplayed by people in your life who don't appreciate the total impact of a PV diagnosis on a patient and their family. This is why we've created the PV Pod, Stories from the Marrow. On the first season of the PV Pod, we'll get into what polycythemia vera is, how it's treated, and how you or your loved ones can manage this rare disease. We'll talk to patients, caregivers, physicians, and advocates. We'll talk about what it's like to live with PV and how to be an advocate for your health. Join us soon for the season premiere of the PV Pod, Stories from the Marrow, available wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe now. The PV Pod, Stories from the Marrow, is produced by Believe Limited and made possible by Pharma Essentia. That was incredible. I am very excited about this show. Honestly, actually, I'm very excited about this show. I've read several scripts and I love it. So if your organization is looking to create an original podcast or maybe sponsor an existing podcast within the Bloodstream Media Network, you can email us at mailbag at bloodstreammedia.com. And don't forget to go subscribe to PV Pod Stories from the Marrow as soon as you finish this episode of Bloodstream. All right, well, next move into Let's Talk with Joshua Sterling Bragg, our mental health segment, this time focusing on the connection between physical and mental health and how eliminating certain things from your life can lead to discoveries in other parts of your life. I'm doing a lot of gesturing here to get this part of the podcast out. You are. You are. (laughs) It works. Let's Talk is a partnership between Bloodstream Media and Sanofi, and it aims to create an environment where we can have open, honest conversations about mental health in the bleeding disorder community. Let's Talk strives to shed light on topics that are often invisible and not spoken of in the community and share tips on how to care for your or a loved one's mental health. If you or someone you know has experienced feelings that have impacted your mental health, talk to your healthcare provider and find educational resources at letstalkmh.com. Sanofi is proud to sponsor this podcast segment because they believe that each of us has a story. Visit shareyourwhy.com to meet the Sanofi core team and hear from them and members of the community about their story and passion for the hemophilia community. Now let's get on to let's talk with all of the things. With all the things. With the connecting the physical and the mental. <laughs> I'm over 100 days sober from alcohol, which is something I never really expected to say. It's not because of addiction, although I did develop some really unhealthy habits over the course of the pandemic. No, it's a choice my wife and I made for our mental and physical health. 
Don't worry, this segment isn't going to be preachy or self-righteous. As usual, I'm just sharing where I am in my mental health journey with the hopes that somebody listening finds it helpful. Let's talk. Just before New Year's Eve, my wife tells me she's giving up drinking. This wasn't a shocking thing. She'd been sober curious for years now and had been trending away from alcohol for a while until the old pandemic hit. And when it did, we built out a little but mighty home bar so that we could learn to make some fancy cocktails to scratch that itch of going out in public for happy hour. We had plans on New Year's Eve to hang out with some friends, and so we went to a local alcohol-free booze shop and picked up some drinks to experiment with. Heineken Zero Zero, a bottle of bubbly wine, and a dupe of tequila. I, on the other hand, decided to drink that night because I had bought a $40 bottle of port and had been making a big deal about it to my friends. In my family, we have a winter tradition of stripping down the dining table after dinner and passing the port, eating stinky cheese and pears and nuts until it's all gone. And although port is one of Courtney's favorite things, she stayed strong in her decision and didn't even have a taste. I was really impressed with her determination in that moment, and although I knew I'd be following suit because that's how we are in our relationship, stronger together, I think that was the moment I truly decided I wanted to take alcohol out of the equation for myself as well. At first, it was really hard. I had been in the habit of having a drink while I cooked dinner and then one with dinner or after, so finding that substitute felt really important to me. We have a tiny, narrow kitchen, which most of the year is so hot I have to be in a tank top and shorts just to be in there, and so that special drink was my reward for cooking every single day. Another barrier was that moment I come home from a long trip or a shoot day and I just want to crack open a cold one. It's funny how we find excuses for stuff like this. I call it the I deserve this syndrome, and it applies to more than just booze. It applies to making random purchases, to extra food helpings, watching an extra episode of something or an extra hour of TikToks when you know you got to get to bed because you got to get up early. It applies to going out, to ordering in instead of cooking, to dessert, to flaking on friends, to flaking on yourself, skipping yoga. It's so easy to look at what a hard day you've had and think, I deserve a little something for my efforts today. And look, you do. You really, really do deserve something for your efforts today and yesterday and the day before because we're all, not to be morbid, but we're all slowly dying one day at a time, and most of us work really challenging jobs, whether it be physically or mentally or emotionally or even just exhaustion out of sheer boredom. And then there's keeping up with your family, your parents, if you're lucky enough to still have them, and there's life planning and taxes and bills. And then right when you think you have your finances in order, the car breaks down, you have a health scare, the bed frame gives out, your dog gets sick. It's endless. Life isn't easy. Even the billionaires are miserable, maybe even more so than us little folk. They're lonely, paranoid, angry, manic, and so, so greedy. So yes, treat yourself. Give yourself a reward for just being you today and doing the best you can. But think about that reward. Think long and hard. It's so easy to reach for the beer, to order the chimichanga with extra cheese, to spend the extra $100 on random stuff you find at Target when you're supposed to stick to the list, speaking from experience here. But if you change your mentality about how you treat yourself, you just might find you get what you need. 
I'm over 100 days now. One third of the year has passed and I haven't had a single drop of alcohol. I've replaced it, sure, with 0% beer, which I really, really enjoy. There are so many of them now. But, you know, from my last segment that soon after I gave up drinking, my doctor told me that I had really high blood pressure and that I needed to change my lifestyle. And I listened to my doctor because I want to live as long as I possibly can. I've had to change the way I eat the way I exercise. It's been a lot all at once. But through this process, I started to think about how I treat myself and not just treat like reward, but how do I treat my body? How do I treat my mind, myself? And I started thinking about rewards in a way that could be a true gift to my future self. I still have a few 0% beers for the week, but I choose to make that a priority for the weekend. This is better for my body and general health. And I still go out to eat, but I choose to do that once or twice a month, and we make it special. It's a real date night, an opportunity to enjoy each other, not just a lazy escape from cooking. I do yoga or ride my exercise bike so that I can eat freely at an event or a party without doing any mental gymnastics to try and convince myself it's okay. It is okay. Not just because I deserve it, but because I put in the work to make sure my body can handle it. And look, a lot of my issues are with food, but that's just me. But this also applies to like finances as well. I'm in a big hole of debt, but by changing the way I reward myself and the way that I think about all the stuff I want, I've been able to pay off my car and two of my credit cards just simply by changing my thoughts from I need this, I deserve this, to I want this, but I need to save for it so I don't create create more debt. And in my health journey, I'm now down 20 pounds. I'm on day 20 of a 30-day yoga challenge. My gut health is the best it has been in 10 years probably, and I have loads more energy. I get better sleep, and I'm more productive and creative. And the number one thing, and it took a little bit of time to get there through all of this change, is I'm more consistently happy. And that is the best part out of all of this. Everybody's journey looks different, and what I did for myself won't work for everybody. But what I can say is that you can gift your future self something today, something that would make your future self happier and healthier. And I can promise your future you will be really appreciative. Thank you to Patrick and Amy for giving me a space to talk about these things. Talking can be so healing. If you are on a mental health journey and don't know where to begin, check out letstalkmh.com and click resources. And as for us, let's talk next month. Thank you, Josh, once again for another excellent segment. Thank you, Sanofi, for the continued support. And while we're on the thank you train, thank you, Gunner. Thank yes. you, Rich. Thank you, Shelby. Thank you, Keith. Thank you, Jack Need. Uh! <laughs> I also want to thank Takeda, BelieveMeSource.com, oh, yeah. yeah. for your ongoing support of the Bloodstream Podcast. And Amy Board, we have another podcast episode because we do this every other Friday yeah. and whenever else we want. Yeah. What are listeners going to hear on the next episode of the Bloodstream Podcast? I got to do another interview that you were not able to do because <laughs> you were doing your project. Uh, Y'all, <laughs> Dr. Guy Young is going to be here. The luminous Dr. Guy Young is going to talk about Fetusaran which is great mm. because I did not Amy, tell us everything know, you know what Fetusaran was. And also please tune in to that interview because I give a horrible, 
horrible like rendition of what the clotting cascade is to Dr. Young. <laughs> At one point I go, oh my God, because I know a little bit. Of, I was like, so wait a minute, Dr. Young. So this is when, and I, like halfway through, I was like, I've made a terrible mistake. <laughs> <laughs> I like don't know what I'm talking about. And Precious Guy Young is like, yes. Yeah, so, and then he like very lovingly like saved me. But anyway, please listen to it. You have never sold me I know. better <laughs> I know. on engaging I know. with content. Literally, I was like, please don't cut this. It's the best part of the entire thing is me like giving like a clotting cascade rendition. You know what? Of like what happens to Dr. Young. <laughs> as jealous as I was of you taking the Gunner interview, I think from now on, I'm going to pass them all to you. <laughs> Because if this is the kind of gold no. that is in play, no, it's so bad. Oh, Amy Board at the wheel, going rogue, going rogue is what everybody wants. Going rogue, it's what the people want. Amy, I was I'm talking telling you. about like fibrinogen. Like I have any say in you like know what fibrinogen all does. All about fibrinogen, Amy. Barely, you know it all. Okay, so obviously, listeners, there's no better <laughs> podcast you could be listening to for great education and information and about bleeding disorders. So subscribe, listen to episodes, tell your friends, do all the things. And with that, that is all for this episode. Thank you for listening to the Bloodstream Podcast. And if you or a loved one in the bleeding disorders community has a story to tell, we want to hear it. Yes, we do. Mailbag at bloodstreammedia.com. We are always filling new segments, casting new projects, engaging with community members. You have a story. We want to hear it. Mailbag at bloodstreammedia.com. You can also connect with us on social media. Me, Patrick, myself, we're all there on Amy's the Amy's there too. Herself, <laughs> Amy, me. I'm your host, Patrick James Lynch. And I'm your other host, Amy Board. And until next time when you're going to hear the interview of all of our lives, take self-care of yourself. <laughs> Bye, everybody. Bye.